Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Hello, this is Siri, and you're listening to my favorite podcast, Not Real Art. I live for this shit because it's totally lit. Greetings, artists and art lovers. Welcome to Not Real Art, series favorite creative culture podcast. I'm your host, Sourdough, and today I'm joined by my dear friend, the one and only Eric Coley. Hello, everyone. Eric Coley in the house. Africa in the house. Indeed. Senegal, to be specific. We have to be PC, indeed. Senegal, not Africa, which ostensibly is part of it. Here we go with the big words. Man, I went to an American public school. Like, I don't speak five languages like you. Eight. I'm, Shh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Eight. So thanks for having me, Scott. It's great to have you here, Eric. As you know, our podcast is about celebrating creative culture in all of its forms. Artists, designers, creatives, creators, people who have visions and see things that others don't and have the will and the gumption to uh, try to realize those visions. Uh, Most people don't have the courage that it takes to uh, try something new, go out of the comfort zone, uh, take a risk, build a company, create a piece of art. Uh, You, my friend, are an entrepreneur. You are a creator and are working on a rather exciting uh, new business proposition right now. And I thought that the, the, this was a great uh, subject to talk about on the show because mental health is such an important issue for artists. Specifically, I think a lot of artists deal with mental health issues, depression, anxiety, whatever, on the low end. On the high end, God knows what they're dealing with in terms of you know, being bipolar or whatever. I don't know. But I do know that wellness, healthcare, self-care, self-love, mental health, I mean, these are issues that we all deal with. And uh, your business plan is, I think, a really special one because you are—you've identified uh, an underserved market and are trying to bring mental health services to that underserved market. Is that correct? Do I have that right? You are. What was an assumption at the beginning, after having done some market research, we quickly learned that there was a huge community of individuals that was not being properly served. And if I may step back Please. Uh, a bit more sure. and discuss the initial premise, one of my dear friends whom you know, who shall remain nameless, actually, no, I don't think we should. I think we should just discuss her name because it would help in destigmatizing this whole conversation about mental health. So a dear friend of mine, her name is Celeste Williams, whom you know quite well. Shout out to Celeste. Big shout out to Celeste Williams indeed. We love you, Celeste. We do. Beautiful, beautiful woman. So I'm the friend that 
very often insist on my other friends to seek therapy. And I'm going to make it short just so for the sake of this conversation. And Celeste had expressed the misfortune of not being able to find one that she liked, which I found a bit surprising because based on my upbringing, I didn't have as much a need to find someone that she felt she needed to find, i.e. in this case, Celeste being a black woman, she felt the need to seek a black woman because she thought that her experience was quite unique. Sure. And I said to her very impulsively, this was a fun conversation, well, I'm stunned that you can find someone that you feel you could open up to. And I said, well, look, if you can't, let me see what I can do about it. Hung up, did a bit of market research. Well, did a lot of it, actually. And fast forward, we got to a point where we've learned that there's a huge discrepancy when it comes to access to mental health. And that was sometime last year. Fast forward, we are now at a point where we want to be able to make it accessible through a tool that we've developed. I don't want to get ahead of your of the flow of the conversation. No, please, I, I want you to wax poetic um, because nobody can talk, nobody can tell your story better than you can. So, I mean, that is the premise, really. Uh, it was uh, fueled by a need to offer solace and, and comfort to someone whom I think of as being a family member or, as we say, a tribe member. And unfortunately, there's a there's a notion out there that not finding a compatible therapist is just a norm, whereas they do exist. And they just are hard to, to access. And so what we've done, Scott, is we've developed an app. The goal of which is to assemble a list of compatible therapists broken down by ethnicity, gender, religion, orientation, and a slew of other important factors. The complaint that we've heard from people of color and people that are gays and trans and queer is that their safe space they felt was defined and characterized through the lenses of an experience of theirs that was quite, that was quite unique. And they wanted to be able to have a reflection of that on the, on the other side of the table, which they felt was, an, was non-existent. To the contrary, we felt as though that labor force of therapists that was quite diverse did exist. Now, the point became, how do we make such therapists available? Well, the app enables that. It's a user-friendly product that enables the matchmaking between a therapist of your choice and a user or patient based on your unique experiences, sensibilities, and traits. And upon taking an intake questionnaire, you develop, we develop a profile for you that enables us to match you up with someone whom you think and feel you can open up to. And the overall goal for us is to create a form of healing, a platform where people who otherwise have already been neglected by society because they happen to be a minority or a double minority ought to have their voices be heard and honored. And that's why, that's what this app does. The app's name is called Ayana. Which, How is that spelled? Which, uh, it's spelled A-Y-A-N-A. Okay. And Ayana is a term that originates from the Bengali language 
which is a region out of Bengal in East India. And Ayana means a mirror. And we've picked that because reflection matters. Reflection of your values matters. If therapy is defined as a notion of compassion, oftentimes compassion exists if I'm able to see you and feel you and understand you. And we don't feel as though therapy is a privilege. It is a right. And if you rest on the fact that you haven't been able to find that particular person that you can open up to, our duty and our job and mission is to make social therapists available. Hence, the sense of reflection. That's Ayana. That's us. I want to tell you that I actually find the, the concept behind your name quite poetic. Thank you. I mean, a good name for any company is, is, is challenging at best. It strikes me that you put a lot of great, well, a lot of thought into naming your company. I mean, it, it needs to be mentioned that you were quite instrumental in helping this happen. That doesn't need to be mentioned at all, it, it but does. I, was, you, I was involved, yes. As my dear friend, when I run things by you, you used to be the kind of friend that would say, I kind of like it. You've <laughs> now morphed into the guy that says, this is shitty. It needs to be redone. <laughs> and yeah. so I've come to you with a matrix of names broken down per definition of the names. Yes. The, the length, whether it had to be monosyllabic or not. Yes. And a few other factors... I think I had, what, 50 names? Well, you had a lot of names. I mean, what I, you know, so to kind of reframe this part of the conversation, what I did appreciate having, you know, been there as you were talking this through, thinking this through, what I did appreciate was how committed you were to a rigorous process to get a name that not only communicated the the value of uh, the values of your organization, but a name that was inclusive and was accessible uh, to as many people of color as possible. You didn't want the name to inadvertently connote the wrong meaning because the language, there was a language barrier of some kind. So I know I really appreciated the, the commitment you had to finding the right name that transcended a lot of the cultural barriers or, or uh, language barriers that you're going to bump up against? Well, thank you. So our demographic, as you know, is quite large in that it encompasses African-Americans, Latinos, Asians, and Arabs, but with a huge emphasis on intersectionality. So LGBTQ to us matters immensely. And to be able to find a name that would encompass all these very various uniquely defined ethnicities and group of people, the name had to not only be able to speak of the mission, but also given the known version of our demographic, we had to also make sure that the name would not be at all threatening the name would be seen as a way to somewhat disarm and make comfortable people who otherwise would seek therapy as something that they would be very uncomfortable with. 
Okay, so you said the word comfortable. I think you're getting at this 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 idea that this idea about accessibility and and not just accessibility, but 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 a level of how should I say? Um, look, cutting to the chase, right? I mean, it feels like therapy in many communities is stigmatized and. What I'm hearing in between the lines, what you're saying is you wanted to make sure that the name helped to mitigate as many stigmas as possible. Indeed. So it's somewhat of a known fact that lack of access to therapy is caused by cost, stigma, but very importantly, the lack of cultural competency by the healthcare system. You take the average person of color who... At first glance, we tell you, I don't really believe in therapy. Why? Because, first of all, it's just not something that was talked about in my household. And even if it were, I don't know that I can afford it. And even if it were, and I could afford it, I don't know that I would be understood. How can I find me on the other side? So you had all those factors. Then you also want to add proximity as well. Can I afford you to take a bus for an hour, leave my office, leave my work Friday afternoon, ask my boss permission to go see my therapist, which would imply what? That it would be a known fact that your boss would know that you are seeking therapy. So you have all these factors that stand in a way. But stigma is huge in the communities of color. You have what's called collectivist cultures. And what that means is that if you and Ascot are siblings and an issue comes up, my first inclination is to come to you or come to our parents or to someone in our community. We have a great amount of allegiance toward each other. And I mean, even bluntly, codependence is huge. So the notion of having to pay a stranger to discuss your own personal issues is just taboo. So... What we had to do and still are doing is educate a lot, right? But do it with gentleness. You cannot forcefully or coercively try to convince someone that what might have been seen as a very Western value is what they should abide by. That's not how it's going to work. I think that understanding one's culture matters. So for instance... When you are dealing with a very devout Catholic Latino therapist, it is okay for you to tell him as a therapist that God, the notion of God or Jesus, is not anti-therapy or that having them be in your room as a patient of yours does not mean that they have to renounce Jesus or God. It is important when you have a Muslim patient to make sure that Allah or Islam or them being a Muslim does not mean that it has to be renounced when they are in your room. And all those very culturally sensitive conversations aren't just something that your common therapist would know about. And let me even add one thing that I've learned, which was quite interesting. There's an acronym called YAVIS. Spell that, please. Y-A-V-I-S. YAVIS is an acronym that defines what therapists usually seek for when it comes to the patients. YAVI stands for young, attractive, verbal, intelligent, and successful. These are the criteria and attributes by which therapists look for the in their patients. Yes. 
Now, 85.9% of therapists in the U.S. are white, right? The rest you have a breakdown. I think African Americans is about five and five and a half, and uh, Latinos four, Asians Asians three, and the West is just a breakdown of the other ethnicities. If I'm a well-intentioned white therapist, and I'll abide by that. I'm ostensibly looking for someone who reminds me of myself because I'm also well-educated. And we all have biases, right? We all have different biases. And so you have all these factors combined that make it hard for someone of color, someone who's a minority, to even be seen properly. There were studies that proved the fact that when someone looks for a therapist after having canvassed a website for days and days and days. If he calls 15 to 20 therapists, the odds of getting a phone call back is 20%, right? All the studies would, were, were done. If the person sounded quote-unquote black, had an accent, a quote-unquote black accent, the odds of being called back were about 5%. So again, you don't want to do therapy first phase. Second phase, you do want to do it. Third phase, you find a way to do it, though cost is an issue. Fourth phase, you do, you want, you do it. You look for someone that you can find. One, because they can see you properly. But before you even get there, you won't even get a call back. So what the app does, it, it circumvents all these issues, right? It enables the matching that is immediate between you and someone whom you think you can open up yourself to. So to circle back to your question, yes, stigma is a huge issue, cost as well, and the fact that not enough therapists that are mostly white don't have what, what we call cultural competency. Well, I think cultural competency is rare in Western medicine, period. True. Right? True. So, I mean, and, and we know this, right? So the minorities are seen to be a majority, right? And so we are not having to play catch up. But if you go deep, deeper inside this conversation, you also realize that the lack of access to education is such that if we abide by the notion that if I'm a black person who's gay, I'd rather see a black person who's gay as my provider, but that black person hasn't had access to education as much as he would have had he been white. So even though there's going to be a majority made of the prior minorities, there still won't be enough of those providers to serve those people. Now, I also want to make sure that we stay away from the belief that having someone that looks like you, resembles you, and reminds you of your values is whom you have to be able to speak to to be comfortable. Sure. That is not the conversation. Sure. What we're saying is you should have the option to. Yes. Right? Or, or else it's called privilege. Choice. It's called choice. Thank you. Right. Right? Far from us, the need to exude the notion that Reflection is what must be there for you to be able to heal. Now, what we're saying is, if that is what your belief is, then you should be able to have it because we know that access to it is possible. And that's what we, are, we aim to achieve. Look, I mean, I get it personally. I mean, at the end of the day, like it feels really practical, right? Like I want any of my medical care providers to get me and... I'll give you a personal example. Sure. I changed medical providers not too long ago, right? I went from a company called Kaiser Permanente, which is uh, an integrated model 
to a fee-for-service model. So my primary care physician at Kaiser Permanente had retired. I had changed jobs. Therefore, I changed insurance. I go to One Medical, which is a, they call it concierge medicine. And I go there with Cigna Insurance. And I go to um, see my primary care physician for the first time. I knew my new doc, right? So I go and I'm 48, right? And I'm waiting in the room and in the medical office, my doctor's degrees from Cornell are on the wall there. Now, Cornell's a damn good school, right? Okay. Feeling good about his education. Door opens, in walks this young white guy who was maybe 35. For the first time in my life, I realized that my doctor is younger than me. My whole life, I had always had older physicians with gray hair, basically. And I saw this doctor many times. And in all candor, never felt comfortable that this young doctor really understood where I was coming from as a 46-year-old guy at the time. And that was being contrasted to my experience with my other doc who had retired, who was maybe 15 years or more my senior, mm -hmm. who had been there, done it. You know, he, he had walked a mile in my moccasins. I remember one time going in to see him and he said, what's wrong? And I said, well, I'm not feeling right, doc. I'm like tired. I've got aches. I got pains. I got twinges. I got tweaks. I got, I'm just feeling really bad. I don't know what's going on. It's very weird. So this doc says to me, how old are you again? <laughs> so, yeah. I said, well, I just turned 41. And he goes, he just looks at me with this like look and he goes, welcome to your forties, pal. Get the hell out of here. Right. And it just made me laugh because he was so right. Okay. Like I'm 41. It's feeling weird. Never felt these little aches and pains and whatever. And when I described it to him, he had the life experience, you know, and the wisdom to ask how old I was. And then he immediately recognized that, oh yeah, oh yeah, you're in your forties. Like, welcome to your forties, right? There's nothing to worry about here. This is life. This is the way it goes. Now that 30 something doctor arguably would not have that level of experience, life experience to have that context in which to give me competent care in that way, that culturally competent care, right? So recently I went back to Kaiser Permanente, right? I had to pick out another doctor, right? And so I called them as a new member and they're asking me, you know, about my needs and you know, what kind of doc I was looking for. And I said, well, I need a primary care physician. I said, but here's the thing. I want the oldest doctor that you have. <laughs> like, if this doctor doesn't have gray hair, I don't want them. You know, sounds funny, but it's true. Like I absolutely wanted a doctor that, that gave me a sense of understanding and trust and patience and wisdom uh, that comes with seeing yourself or at least that they could see me and mm -hmm. see the whole me. Sure. Right. Sure. And so that's a personal example within kind of my primary care mm -hmm. that, you know, as we think about how it extrapolates out into other aspects of care and, you know, I can see how your app would be so, so important for matching 
people who are seeking care with people who can deliver care that is relevant to them. Indeed. And it's about comfort. I mean, look, this is about also intimacy, right? I'm going to let you in on some of the most private parts of myself. Right. Whether it be emotional, psychological, physical, also biological or physiological as well. We like to loosely dub our brand as a match between Uber and online dating. When you go online dating, when you used to, Scott, back in the day. I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) The goal, the business model is based on finding you the best potential match. It asks you about the socks that your mother wore last night. Bad joke. It asks you about (laughs) questions that really, really matter. Its goal is to get to know you. Its success is based on how well have I been able to get to know Eric in order to give Eric the best possible match. Now, you have the competition that does online mental therapy whose questionnaire, which is the first point of contact with a potential new user, whom for us is someone of color. Their questionnaires are so generic that it's called for majority, which is called for white people. And so there's not a need to make it as nuanced as it would need to be. So we have had to reframe ours. And if I may walk you through, and also the audience, the process of our product, you first log on by using your own email address and password, and it's anonymous. No one knows who you are, which helps to stigmatize the whole experience. You go through a questionnaire that's been reframe culturally in order to be able to get out of you the most important information for us to give you your best possible match. Once you fill out the questionnaire and we've matched you up with a therapist, you start communicating with them by text, by phone, or by video conference calls. Were you to be dissatisfied with a therapist whom you've been assigned to, you can let go of them and be reassigned to someone else. And your data and information would just be kept, which by the way, this is important. The data is also private. It's encrypted. But your data is then sent to your your new therapist. And that's to prevent from you having to rehash your whole information and your whole story, which as we know is quite daunting. I'm going to give you a couple of stats, one of which I think stunned me when when I read about that. There were studies made that said that People of color, African-Americans specifically, spend three quarters of a therapy session discussing race. Three quarters. This is when the notion of privilege comes up. And to take it back to my friend, our friend Celeste, when she said to me, Eric, I don't need any therapist who's like me, a black woman. My response was, jokingly, well, that's strange. Man was a Jewish woman last year. She goes, well, that's great, but I need a black woman. So I had to check myself, not being African-American per se, that I had the privilege of not having to bring race into the conversation. When you walk into a room and three quarters of your time is spent talking about an important part of life that shouldn't be nearly as important as it is, that demands, requires honoring that moment. And so part of what we do is making sure that the other side of the table is meant to honor that very voice that you have. 
And if it requires having someone that looks like you, then we have to make it happen. Wow. Well, look, I can hear the cr- critics now. Therapy, it's supposed to be personal. It's supposed to be in a room, face-to-face. You know. And by the way, when I say critics, I mean therapists. Mm-hmm. Therapists who criticize this as being a commodification of this sacred relationship right, between therapist and patient. The fact that, because I know you said some of the care is delivered via text, via maybe uh, video conferencing, telephone, so on and so forth. You know, how do you respond to those critics who say the efficacy of the therapy is is mitigated because uh, many of your so-called patients, clients, users won't necessarily be able to be in a room with their therapist? So it's a very valid point that's been brought up. My counter argument to my, my, my retort to that would be that, well, it's twofold. One is there's a current that is growing quite fast, defined by a slew of individuals now doing therapy online, both on the demand and supply side. So both from the therapy standpoint, which is called telehealth, and supported by a demand. The biggest company in this space is called Talkspace. Talkspace has over 3 million customers and about 2,500 therapists. Talkspace, amongst a slew of the smaller companies like them, have come out with studies by renowned universities, one of which is called Columbia University, Another one is by Stanford University, giving credence to the notion that online therapy it is as successful as face-to-face therapy. Now, personally, I would love to be able to make sure that, though this has been said and asserted, I believe that our success must include the stamp of approval by therapists themselves. And by this, I mean that I want them to be as involved in maintaining the integrity and authenticity of the whole experience. This movement is going online. It's just inevitable, right? Now, the question becomes, how do we make it still as efficient as we need it to be? Number two, we also are claiming that online mental health is meant to replace traditional face-to-face therapy, but the current demographics seem to have given, seem to have shown huge amounts of comfort in doing therapy online. I'm going to give you some facts. The biggest users of cell phones, of media, of online products in the U.S. broken down is African-Americans, Latinos, whites and nations. Young black kids send over 65 texts a day. I don't know about you, Scott, but if I send more than five, I get high blood pressure, right? Marketing studies have been done to assess the level of involvement that this, this, this newer generation has when it comes to media and, and communication. And they'll say so, look, this is what my life revolves around. Now, to get back to your point, 
if therapy is something that you've never done before, it is fair to assume that you would not mind doing it while not having to see someone at first glance, right? The lack of proximity makes it easy for you to open up, right? The lack of proximity provides greater access. Let's assume that you, Scott, you happen to be a therapist and you are multiracial. You happen to be half black, half Asian, a third, a third white, and you're Muslim. You are a very unique individual. People that you exist in the world. How would anyone find you, Scott? You happen to live in LA. If I happen to live in Berkeley and you are someone that I must be able to see, how do I do that? I can grab them every weekend, right? That is something that the app is able to offer, right? So does the quality of the service suffer a little bit? I would not agree to that. But are there great elements, great value adds that this product offers? I'd say so. By the way, for the record, I asked the question just because I was curious about your answer. I uh, question the motives of those critics to begin with because I think their criticism and their concern isn't too much different than the Catholic Church's concern of the printing press when the suddenly they couldn't control the Bible anymore. You know, so for me, it's the same fucking thing. It's this is the you know what you're providing is something which is better than nothing. I'd say yeah. more, but go ahead. What, what I'm just saying, like, yeah. what, what's the alternative? You don't try to meet those people halfway. If you have the chance, if you is, is meeting somebody halfway better than not meeting them at all, I would say so. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, Eric, why you? Why you, man? Why? I mean, you, um, you know, you're not a therapist. You're not a psychologist yourself. Uh, I know you've, you know, I've known you a long time. I know you have seen therapists from time to time. Was, you know, were you personally sort of impacted by your work with therapists in such a way that this inspired you to try to, you know, bring this to your brethren or what's driving you? Thank you, Scott. So when I decided to delve into a bit of research in trying to figure out how come Celeste, our friend, wasn't able to get a therapist of her choice, I became so involved in my research that it triggered a very honest inner dialogue. I had been suffering from severe issues of depression for a while, which I had tried to tend to by uh, having therapists, hence my appreciation for them. Hence, my always screaming to my friends, you should get one. And the deeper I get into it, and as you know, I've read thousands of pages of research. And I said to myself, okay, so this is a chance for you to really, really, really get lost in this particular endeavor of yours and have it provoke transparency for the sake of a potential successful endeavor. And that transparency essentially demanded my being open and discussing my mental challenges. And that sense of intimacy between the new 
more open, Eric, and that and that pursuit grew into a relationship that made me even more adamant and vehement in wanting to make this a fruitful product. It was as much about my finding, my wanting to find a compatible therapist for Celeste as it was for my own healing. Add to that the fact that if my own story, which had become comfortable, be used as a vessel, could be the first laying blocks of someone saying, okay, if he's able to go there, Anna can come out of my hiding and express my current needs. To me, success existed in that particular moment, right? Outside of the product. If my being comfortable and quite, and quite vulnerable and discussing my own issues could be seen as a trigger to your being comfortable discussing yours, I don't know what other gifts can life offer you. It sounds like what you're saying is that you may very well even become a spokesperson for your own organization because um, as a user of mental health services, you want to help you know, evangelize and have uh, hopefully be the example people see themselves in you. You are a mirror as well. That's well said. That's actually a good epiphany. If I may steal the shit from you. Actually, I don't need permission. I'm going to take it from you. Bills in the mail. <laughs> but um, yeah, so by what we, what we would call transitivity, right? The product is a mirror between therapists and our users. But I myself, who's behind the creation of the product, I'm willing to be the be a vessel to have the story story went through. And also, to your point, be the mirror for that particular user. So yes, so to answer your question, my, you know, I believe that one of the most sought after things in life is passion, which I know you know very well. And I like to joke that if passion was a stock, I wonder whether it would trend high or trend low, or whether if it was based on economic success, only rich people would be able to afford it. Mm. And poor people wouldn't be able to, whether there'd be some kind of exemption. Well, think, yeah, well, the question gets you passion for what, right? Because people have... No, you, you want, you, whatever it is, you yeah. buy the stock uh-huh. and it speaks to your passion. Yes, right? yes. So it's, it is individualized. Yes, so okay. The stock, tra- the stock trades in the market, is it an Apple stock? Is it Netflix? Or is it, I don't know, a penny stock? Yeah, right. Right? And if I may go a bit existential here... Passion, you hardly ever find it. You hardly ever land on it. You hardly are ever born knowing it, right? It takes years of self-exploration. But I believe in looking for it and building it at least halfway. And for this particular endeavor, I feel as though yours of exploration and also honesty and transparency. Because I think it took me years to even sit on this podcast discussing this, though you my boy, okay? Can't believe I'm doing this, actually. But it's not about me, is it, right? It's not about me. It is about, Eric, if you're being transparent because you have a product that could be made popular, 
if that can give access to healing to strangers around you that you may never meet, if if it's not success, then what is success? Well, you know, it's fascinating because, um, you know, everybody's on their own journey. Everybody has their, you know, shit that they're dealing with, whatever. Everybody handles that shit differently. You know, I've known you a long time and there are private people and there are proud people. You have been both of those for a very long time. And I think part of what's interesting to watch your journey is the decoupling because I mean, pride is a, a, an important thing. We all want pride, but to the extent that pride becomes a barrier to health or self-care, self-love, what have you, it's fine to be private, right? It's fine. You know, it's fine. You know, privacy is, is I think at an all time premium these days. Right. And certainly within the, between the relationship of the therapist and the patient, that's supposed to be a sacred relationship a very private one, obviously. And I just, you know, for the listeners who are grappling with mental health issues or, and, and using you as a mirror, as a, you know, strong Senegalese immigrant to this country who comes from a very proud heritage, um, you know, of education, of empowerment, of grace and class and, and, and what have you. I think, you know, my word's not yours, but I think, you know, you got to a point where, you, th you realize your pride was maybe standing in the way of your health. And, you know, f to the extent that people can be inspired by you, because I mean, you know, if people just look at you from the outside and they think, oh, that guy's got it all together. You know, he, well, you know, you know why, why would he need therapy? Well, you know, the truth is we all need therapy. We all <laughs> got shit going on that would benefit from some therapy time. But, you know, whether you know, talk about access, sometimes access is our own, we're getting in our own way, right, from access. And, you know, pride can do that. There's old, uh, what's the old, is it a verse in the Bible, pride comes before the fall? I mean, you know, let's talk about that, right? And um, for those people out there who are potentially um, reluctant to go to therapy, find the help that they need for any number of reasons, one might be economic. One might be, you know, finding that mirror that they're looking for. Um, but some people might just be too damn proud. And, you know, that's a dangerous, unhealthy way to be as well. So I think, you know, I know you've inspired me, you know, watching your journey. And I, and I hope that the people listening today are inspired by your journey as well to find the help that they need, whether it's through your app or not. Listen, we just have a few minutes left. I want to make sure that we give our listeners the information they need to find you. Now, I know you're a startup, but how can our listeners find you now? Are you, uh, you in beta? Can they you know, follow you on Instagram? Uh, get, you know, how can people find you online? So we, have, we are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. On Twitter and Facebook, you can follow us at Ayana therapy.com and it's spelled a-y-a-n-a -A therapy t-h-e-r-a-p-i for both facebook and twitter for instagram it's ayana underscore therapy and you can also get on the pre-launch list by going on our website and submitting your email and the website's name is ayanatherapy.com and again, Ayana is A-Y-A-N-A. -A. Correct. And forgive me, I had a call this week. So when you hear this very baritone voice, that's not because that's how I usually sound, though I would love to. It's because I was just a bit ill. 
So, so it sounds like you need a primary care physician on top of your therapist. You need some cold medicine. Touche. <laughs> Indeed, my friend. Well, uh, Eric Coley, feel better. Get over your cold. Thank you. Congratulations on all of the hard work and the success thus far. I know you have a long way to go. We all do in terms of getting our startups up and running into a sustainable, frictionless <laughs> pathway uh, towards fruition. And uh, I know, you know, not only is your business model, you know, I think one that serves a practical need, it also is one that serves a higher need. So I commend you uh, on the community benefit nature of your of your endeavor. Thank you. And if I may give a shout out. Of course. I want to give a shout out to someone named Scott Power. We don't know who he is. We do, we do know uh, Sourdough. Who happens to be, whose name happens to also be Sourdough, who's the person behind this podcast that I'm fortunate enough to have been a guest of. Um, he's a, I've known him for, how long have I known you, Scott? 15 years? What, oh, three? Oh, three? Oh, four? 16, yeah, 16 long years. Long fucking time. Too long. <laughs> <laughs> who's been a prolific and relentless idea maker, but beyond being beyond being able to just birth ideas, he does what most of us won't do, which is execute on the ideas. And this is just his most recent one. Actually, frankly, I don't get surprised when I get a phone call from him. Eric, look, I have a new idea. And I'm like, okay, let me put my stuff aside. This is some good stuff that I, I need to hear. So I need to give him a shout out and honor he's you know he's, it's about it's a, it's a this is about time you know this has been a long time coming i've been waiting for uh for a little bit of a little bit of love you know you interrupted my uh <laughs> that's rude uh so essentially just to recap i think it's important to praise i don't even like the word praising it's just acknowledging actually right acknowledging people's dedication to a better version of themselves to a an unwillingness to just sit around and not question things around you but being willing to go beyond questioning them but also being able to identify a need and having the courage and discipline to study and assess the feasibility of that particular effort and need and then just go forward and literally be so comfortable with failing that it no longer becomes something that you even think about. And my man over here is Scott Edwin Power. AKA Sourdough. AKA Sourdough has been behind so many endeavors that I, I think he needs to be able to be acknowledged for that. And again, it's something that ought to be able to inspire many of us. He's too humble to speak of it. And I'm not being paid for this shit, by the way, for the record, although I would love to. But this No, you is are not being paid for this. At all. At all. I just had pizza. That, that was... <laughs> okay. I that, got you. I paid you in pizza. Yes. Meat pizza. But yeah. And um, he's part of my village. And so I've known him for a long time. And I've been present to the actualization of many of those thoughts and concepts. And I think it's very important to always tap the shoulder of your people and tell them and remind them of how proud you are of them. So this is it for me. 
Thank you, brother. Thank you. That means a lot to me. Life brought us together um, in a beautiful way. I mean, the fact that, you know, somebody from Senegal, Africa, and Gary, Indiana <laughs> came together at Shotzi in Venice during Arnold Schwarzenegger's cigar dinner in 0304. The fact that we would hit it off and become friends from two totally different backgrounds is a testament to the human experience. And when people and spirits come together and find, you know, uh, similarities and commonalities, but also differences and uniqueness, like we're living in a world now where it feels like we're, you know, we need more uh, empathy and we need more understanding, more conversation. I've always felt like I've gotten empathy, understanding and, and great conversations with you. And I'm grateful for our friendship. And, uh, you know, we're both seekers and we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to seek till we find. And uh, then we're going to keep seeking again because <laughs> we just, we're wired that way, right? All right, my friend, listen, good luck. Thank you. Come back. Will you come back? When I make it? Talk more. Yeah. All right. Progress reports along the way? Indeed. I'd love that. Good. And then uh, maybe I'll have you come back and just, you know, we can spend the whole hour just let, you know, we'll just let you talk about me more because you're so good at it. Look, <laughs> are the four minutes up? Yes, we got to run. Okay. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Eric Coley from Ayana. Thank you, guys. Cheers. Cheers. We're over and out. Thanks for tuning in. Sourdough.